Well, good evening and uh, welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. I know the, the weather is most inclement, so thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, as you no doubt know, CIS has for many years, going back to the mid to late 1970s, we've been unashamed advocates of economic reform. And when you hear economic reform, it's not a politically sexy subject, but it's a very important subject. It's about putting in place market-oriented policies to help boost productivity and growth. And it's a tough sell, politically. Uh, I think this has been quite evident since John Hewson's election loss in 1993. But the, the cold hard reality is that economic reform, especially during that 25-year golden age under Hawke and Keating and Howard and Costello, in many respects they put in place policies that helped set the scene uh, for the 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. And um, I think that uh, it, it helps to recognise that things like deregulating the financial markets, floating the dollar, slashing import protection, cutting income, company taxes, uh, monetary policy independence, competition policy, privatisation, deregulation, all of those policies were widely controversial at the time, uh, but they did produce what many people regard as the world's miracle economy. Um, little known fact, but from the mid-1980s until the end of the commodities boom in 2011-2012, we had real wage growth. We had the largest incomes boom since the gold rushes, an extraordinary period of prosperity. Uh, we'll be talking about that period, but also what it means for the country going forward, given that there has clearly been reform fatigue in Canberra for a very long period of time. There is no question that one of this country's leading advocates of economic reform is my next speaker. Michael Stutchbury uh, is the Editor-in-Chief of the Australian Financial Review, has been so for several years now. Before that, he was the editor of the Australian newspaper. I can only think of one other person who's been the editor of the two national flagships in this country, and that was Max Newton. Um, I think there's a distinction that one should draw between Max Newton and Michael Stutchbury. We won't go there tonight. But Michael Stutchbury has been a leading supporter of economic reform in this country for more than three decades, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him here to CIS. Thanks, Tom. Uh, it's, a, it's a real ple pleasure and an honour to be here uh, launching Peter Hendy's important, uh, important new book and to be at the CIS uh, with Tom Switzer, who, uh, who I've worked with at both the, the Australian uh, and the Financial Review, and uh, really thrilled to see Tom taking the reins at the CIS and taking, uh, taking you know, one of Australia's great uh, think tank institutions to, uh, to, a new, to a new higher level. Now, uh, I'm here to launch. Uh, uh, why Australia slept uh, uh, is Australia sleepwalking uh, its way into the future, uh, and I think there's the genre of Peter Hendy's book, uh, and we'll hear from him in first person in a while. Owes a lot to the, the personal history of the author. Uh, it's a history of a career in economics, policy making, and politics, from a young Treasury official tutoring. Andrew Peacock on economics, the hard jobs, yep. amongst others, uh, through to the other extreme of uh, uh, advising uh, John Hewson on fight back, 
uh, with a bit of Peter Reith in defence and a bit of IR warrior with Peter Peter Reith uh, with Brendan Nelson. No doubt there's a bit of Switzer connection there, and then even uh, onto Julie Bishop. So the whole, just about the whole uh, uh, rock and roll heaven there, uh, light light up that you've advised along the way. Uh, he's been a business. He's been a lobbyist for business associations. Even had a stint in economic development in the Middle East. And uh, even if being a politician tripping over TV camera cables in shopping centres is not his natural calling, <laughs> uh, he also he also had a stint as being a. Um, uh, being in a marginal seat, a little marginal Liberal MP. I think he provided the Queen Bean lounge room party pies for the MP conspirators who ended up putting him out of the room. <laughs> then, uh, after a brief stint tripping over the, the TV camera cables, uh, he lost his seat in uh, sadly in 2016, but became the Chief Economics Advisor to the new Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. And now, as I understand, hanging out his own shingle and writing books. So, this is a book about that reflects the, the I think very much reflects the author and his history uh, and I think it's a terrific thing for people to be come up through Treasury, go into policy making, go into politics and really contribute to public life like this. And this is a book about economic history from the well-known story of the Australian Federation to now and beyond. So it's about how Australia's Federation settlement of high import protection for an import infant manufacturing industry, uh, heavy regulatory intervention in the labour market to support Australia's labour unions and a wide Australia policy to keep out competition from cheap imported Asian or Islander labour. And it's about how this Australian settlement uh, from the Federation after generations gave way to what Peter calls the Australian settlement 2.0. Zero. You say 2.0? I do. Uh, which from the 1970s, in particular the 1980s, dismantled these key pillars of the original settlement. Now a lot of this is told through the prism of business associations, such as the uh, Chambers of Manufacturers, the Chambers of Commerce and the Business Council of Australia, so there's a bit of heavy research I think into the, into the history of business associations. And this settlement, and in the book, the Settlement 2.0, L0 can be traced back to the, the Whitlam government's 25% tariff cut, to the pre-Whitlam winding back of the White Australia policy under coalition governments, and the Campbell Committee report into the financial system under Howard Fraser. But, of course, particularly to the really big opening up of the economy under Hawke Keating, followed by some Howard Costello. It's a well-known story, but I think it's worth retelling from this vantage point. And it's good to hear terms such as microeconomic reform and economic rationalism still being thrown around. Uh, now it's sometimes called neoliberal economics and often intended as a term of abuse. And from my point of view, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and it's a... It's, a, it's a satisfying to see, not satisfying, but maybe slightly jolting to see uh, one's own, uh, that it mirrors one own, one's own personal career and even sees a quote from, from uh, oneself back, uh, back in the 1980s re, uh, represented there. So it's been a short time, but a long time. Uh, and then the story goes on to the sleepwalking into the crisis uh, thesis. Now, basically, this is how the prosperity generated by the productivity payoff from the reforms of the 18, 1980s and 90s, and then the unexpected bonanza of the China boom has morphed in today's 
complacency. And as we know, there's been no major productivity enhancing policy reform that has been sustained since Howard's GST in 2000. That's getting on to two decades and about as, as uh, long as some of the young CISs have been, uh, been around on this earth. And the question becomes, is 2.0 degenerating into something that's <coughs> prosperous? Are we going through another long cycle of bad policy which will end up at crisis at some time, hopefully prompting a new productivity policy consensus and hopefully not the Beijing consensus. And the news story, the big news story in uh, Peter's book and the one we put on page one of the Financial Review goes back to what he says about how politicians in recent times, including himself, have contributed to this risk of sleepwalking into crisis. And first, if I could make a point about the cycles of economic history, including in an area not necessarily fully covered in the book. The Financial Review campaigned against the Royal Commission into banking and other financial sector misconduct. Conduct. But in a business news sense, the Banking Royal Commission has been the best thing that's ever happened. Uh, it's like Brexit for the FT, or Trump for the New York Times, or the Washington Post. <laughs> and to recognise these long cycles in Australian political history, it might be worth going back to the previous Banking Royal Commission, uh, not covered in the book in great detail. In 1935, Joe Lyons' government uh, had a Banking Royal Commission forced on it by Labor, and by rebel country party members, much like Turnbull had the Banking Royal Commission forced on him in 2017 when the revolting Queensland Nationals jumped the fence during that period when Barnaby was out of office because of the bizarre dual citizenship crisis. Now that Royal Commission back in 19, from 1935 to, through to 1937 was more of a commissioning of inquiry that set up the idea of central banking and Keynesian demand management for the post-war period. And it included Ben Chifley, uh, he was on that, who wrote a dissenting report, and by 1947, Chifley was back in Parliament as Labor Prime Minister, who sought to nationalise the banks, uh, leading, of course, to the massive defeat in the 1949 election and leading to the whole Menzies era. Finally, uh, Peter's most newsworthy point, and the one we put on page one of the Financial Review, goes to his time as a Liberal member for Eden Monero. As Liberal member in a marginal seat, he recounts in, uh, in this book that he argued against a big GST-based tax reform package. The idea that you'd increase the GST, broaden the base, shift the burden onto indirect tax, and then bring down uh, direct taxes, income tax, and sharpen incentives and get, and get growth going. Now partly, as he says in the book, this is due to the politics. And he agreed at the time with Turnbull's decision to go against Scott Morrison and to take the GST tax reform package and federal state financial reform for that matter, matter off the table by early 2016. It was quite a shock at the time for those who were following the story closely. Suddenly it was on the table, everything was on the table and suddenly it was off the table. Now the policy argument was that the numbers no longer added up. So many, there were so many people on the drip, this is the argument, that uh, you'd need, that would need compensation for GST increases to the cost of living, and that would leave too little over, too much, little money over to cut income tax and get the incentive effects. But the political argument was really buttressed by, I think, the searing experience of the Abbott Hockey 2014 budget, the, the first budget after Peter got elected in the 2013 election. And this is where the budget, the 2000 budget, where of course Joe Hockey declaimed and declared that the era of entitlement was over. 
and the age of personal responsibility had begun. So I ask us here, has any politician in Australian life ever been so wrong? Uh, the era of entitlement, of course, was not over. Uh, rather than the end of the age of entitlement, uh, we're digesting uh, Labor's big spending monuments, entitlements on schools, health and disability services. And rather than everybody contributing to fixing Labor's budget mess, as Hockey's budget uh, articulated, everyone was going to contribute, the whole political debate has been reframed around fairness. Supercharged with the lefty populism and attacks on the big banks, Malcolm's rich mates and the so-called big end of town. As one Hawke Keating era iconocrat said to me just the other day, fairness is just a rebranding of entitlement. So Turnbull and Corman swept big tax reform off the table, uh, and Turnbull and ScoMo swept it off the table and put up the white flag on Labor's spending monuments. And Peter's big newsmaking point though is this, Sure, big policy reforms can be controversial, but not making the big policy reforms can also end up being politically costly. And in hindsight, Peter traces Turnbull's sharp fall in the polls from those stratospheric levels that he was after uh, September 2015, the sharp fall by the middle of 2016, and of course the near disaster of the, the mid-2016 election, to public disappointment that Turnbull was not living up to his promise to lead, to reframe the economic narrative and to make the hard calls required to maintain Australian prosperity. And how's this turning now? How's it turning out now? Well, I think the government and the Prime Minister have got a bit of luck with the mini recovery in iron ore, coal and LNG prices, a stronger global economy, uh, pumped up a little bit by the Trump tax cuts. And after hoisting the white flag on Labor spending, Turnbull, ScoMo and Corman, what they're doing now is they're testing voters' willingness to pay for it through tax increases. And it turns out that the squeeze on household incomes and the increased leveraging all this leverage in all this borrowing means that voters aren't that keen, as it turns out, on paying more tax. They're not necessarily all that keen on cutting government spending on schools and hospitals, but they don't necessarily want to pay a lot more tax for it. And so the entitlement versus individual responsibility debate is now being reframed from fairness versus lifters to fairness versus aspiration. And the encouraging thing is even Pauline Hanson points out, as would Donald Trump, is that Labor can't promise fair income tax cuts now for police officers, nurses, school teachers, fireys or traders, tradies, earning close to six figures, because that, if you're going to change the tax scales around there, it's going to flow up to people on 200,000 or 300,000 and they're going to get bigger tax cuts. And that just can't be fair by definition. So they're trapped and they can't give genuine tax reform and can't give tax cuts. So now we're seeing the struggle, which will go through the next election, of the fairness debate, uh, we can't cut government spending, through to the aspiration debate of we need to cut taxes to get the economy going again. So the lesson I draw from this and from Peter's main point is that no doubt policy makers, policy reformers such as Peter, uh, need to choose their timing. Uh, you've got to know when to really be bold. You've got to know when to do a bit of rope-a-dope on the, on the, on the ropes. Uh, but I think when you've got an opportunity, when the stars are aligned, when you've just been re-elected, when, re when you've got a lot of popularity, I think you really should try and move the debate forward and really strike rather than re retreat. And I'm sure that's a lesson that uh, Peter will give to us tonight. So but with that, I think it's my honour to launch the book and to welcome Peter to the stage.
Thank you very much, uh, Michael. That was uh, a tour de force, and basically he went through the whole book, so I don't need to <laughs> So, um, I saw the other day that the, uh, the most popular books that are being sold in Australia today are cookbooks, and so that's why I'm calling this a recipe book for public policy. And um, it's got, uh, as Michael was saying, it's got, it's basically divided into two parts. The first part is a history basically since Federation up until um, uh, basically the end of the Howard government and uh, how we moved from that, as he said, high protection, heavily regulated industries, wide Australia policy, restricted immigration, which was called by Mike Kelly, uh, sorry, Paul Kelly, the uh, Mike Kelly's on my. He's the guy who beat me. In the <laughs> <laughs> so Paul Kelly, let's get this right. Paul Kelly, Paul Kelly described um, this is the Australian settlement that those those protectionist, uh, heavily regulated um, set of um, policies that we had that was set up uh, at Federation by Alfred Deakin. Um, who was actually a Liberal Prime Minister. And, um, and that was set up and it stayed the course for many, many years until essentially in the 1970s, Australia began to, in relative terms, go backwards in its, um, its, 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 um, its wealth, its living standards, uh, compared to the other countries in the OECD. And while the business community had supported Alfred Deakin in setting this up all those years earlier, and they had argued to maintain it throughout the decades. By uh, the 1970s and 1980s, the, the business community, which is what they almost always want to do, were mugged by reality and realised that this was the wrong policy setting for Australia. And, um, and so they uh, argued for, and, and the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry and, and bodies like that, the Business Council of Australia, but also groups like the CIS and the IPA were very instrumental in arguing for a change in direction. The business community supported that and, and there was a change and, and that's the, what I call the neoliberal consensus. So as, as you said, it's a, it's, a, it's a term that is, off, as you said, it's a term that's often used as abuse by the lefties. But, um, but I, you know, if they, if they think it's a good term, I'll use it. And it's, it's basically descriptive of a, a new liberal agenda. And so that's what was implemented. I've called it because this is the buzz, type of buzzword you use nowadays, Australian Settlement 2.0. Um, but you can call it the neoliberal agenda. And it isn't the Beijing consensus that, um, that uh, is currently being espoused by President Xi over in China. It's something very different. And it's what we need for this country. And I, uh, a theme of the book and what Michael in his editorial in the Financial Review uh, picked on, um, on the book was that the business community has a very important role in, in, in arguing for the maintenance of this agenda, uh, for arguing for a continuation and an expansion of the agenda, because that will support our lifestyles into the future. And why do we do that? To talk some boring economics, it's about productivity. And um, uh, people say, you know, Australia's doing quite well. A week or two ago, we had the latest national accounts figures. 
they were tracking around 3%, which is pretty good. And so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the long, that those national account figures, the recent ones, have been propped up by a rebound in our terms of trade and a very high immigration policy, which, which I do have a talk about. And the issue that we have, however, is that productivity growth is now below long-term trends. And um, productivity, um, as um, a famous uh, Nobel Prize winner once said, uh, productivity isn't everything, but it almost is everything. And if for an economy, and you know, if people are complaining about no wages growth, that's a productivity agenda issue. So I, I have chapters on tax policy, I have chapters on industrial relations, on trade policy, and then I also do a little, write a little bit about international trade and, and defence, and we, this might come out in the panel discussion. The last thing I want to comment on before we get down to the more serious discussion uh, with Tom is the name. So the, the book is Why Australia Slept. Many of you will probably know that um, John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy famously wrote a book in which he, he, he talked about why England slept in the lead up to the Second World War in 1939. Why was it that England um, had governments that were appeasers, if we want to use the terminology of the day, in terms of the Nazi menace. And um, the interesting thing that um, he uh, comes to a conclusion on is two things. One is, well, the reason was because uh, the, the population kept on electing governments that had these policies. And he comes to the important second part of his conclusion, which is that who was who's, at whose fault was this Whose fault was this? Was it the politicians? Were they just hopeless? And the answer he came to was it wasn't just the politicians. It, you couldn't blame politicians. This is what John Kennedy said. He said it was the, in a democracy, it was the population as a whole. Everybody has a role to play, you know, arguing for good policy. In this case, standing up to the Nazis, but in my case, talking about economic reform. And it's quite interesting that in his famous inaugural speech in 1961, he had the same theme. If you, if you think back to that famous phrase, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, it's the same theme. It's about responsibility of individual citizens in arguing for something important. And that's what I think this book's about. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh Thank you very much, uh, Peter. Um, and it's also worth stressing that uh, the book um, Why England Slept was, in a way, uh, a connection with Winston Churchill's book While England Slept, which he wrote in 1938. That's right. That's, yeah. right. That's right. That's um, right. Ida Monero, you represented that seat. Yeah, you were elected in 19, uh, 2013, the Abbott landslide. <laughs> and then you lost it in 2016. Ida Monero is a very significant seat in the history of the modern Commonwealth because it represents, it's a bellwether seat. So since 1972, whoever occupied the seat of Ida Monero was a member of the government. So from 72 to 75 to 83 to 96 to 2007 until 2013, the member for Ida Monero had been a member of the government. You lost it, though. Why? Because I like to break conventions. <laughs> <laughs> the reason, um, 
to be honest, uh, it's it's not the sort of seat that people think it is. It, it prior to that 1972 period, it had been for to 25 years at least a safe labour seat and um, I think the demographics have changed. I think that, um, I mean I could go into this, I'm not sure this audience particularly are interested but um, it obviously, um, the seat if you don't know it is surrounds Canberra and as Canberra grows as a metropolis a lot of the population spill over and don't live in Canberra but they live in New South Wales in this, this donut and um, and that has an impact, all these public servants. But, I mean, the fact is, they're 60% Labor voters, those particular yeah. people. Okay, but one of your arguments, I understand it, is that uh, when Tony Abbott was replaced by Malcolm Turnbull, uh, a, a change that you helped encourage, this would uh, help uh, kick-start the reform agenda. And Malcolm Turnbull had championed economic reform, and you say that if Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison had put in place a lot of those free market, economic friendly policies, um, the government would have done better at the ballot box in 2016, meaning you might have kept your seat, correct? Well, it's, that's, <coughs> that's the argument that I'm putting. I mean, it's in hindsight, I must admit. Um, um, at the time, to mention it, um, there'd been, in, it, it wasn't just, I didn't, I didn't change the leadership, it was uh, a majority in sure. the party room yep. and it was an overwhelming majority and it changed. Um, but there was quite a concern in the party room about what had happened in Queensland with the Campbell Newman government, how they had won the, the biggest majority, the biggest percentages since the history of Federation of Australia and they were out within one term and there was concern. The, um, the, the, to, to go to what Michael was talking about, and I think what you're interested in discussing, is that, and, and it is in hindsight, you could see that uh, after Malcolm became the leader, and there were very, very high um, uh, popular polling levels for him and the government, the government was tracking about 57%. And you can see in retrospect that the decision not to proceed with the GST, it, it, it dropped from about 57 to 53. Mm. And, then, um, and then there was a decision, uh, or there was a brief, in fact only a couple of days, discussion about reforming state income tax, which is something I have a chapter on. Now it's not quite right, I think Michael you slipped in that I actually opposed proceeding with that, it was the exact opposite. I actually strongly supported that something needed to be done with that government before the election on Commonwealth State financial relations. And, and, and what, but it was dropped within a couple of days. And um, to be honest, I think that that should have been pursued. It was a reform agenda worth pursuing. The, the Premier's and, and Chief Ministers all said at the time, Malcolm raised it, well, we're not going to do that, that's no. But that's an ambit claim. That's where they were starting. When the GST was offered to them, they all said no. But they all accepted it in the end. Because it was a good deal and they did it, uh, in, and some were Liberal Premiers and some were Labor Premiers, they did it in the face of the best wishes, the best interests of their own people. But when that decision was made to again drop that, it went from 53 to 50-50. 
and that's where it was at the election. Okay. And I think there is actually a, a, a story there. Yeah, so but the, the cold hard reality is that Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison dropped the reform ball in early 2016. In fairness to them, they would have seen what happened in Queensland after Campbell Newman, who won a huge landslide election over the Labor Party, uh, Premier Anna Bly, and within one term, they lost power. So surely the lesson of that period is that, incre uh, not incremental, but large-scale, big-bang economic reform is unpopular. Yeah, I think there's no doubt it can really scare the horses if you come out and do something huge and momentous that people feel threatening. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I think in Queensland, uh, Newman and um, Newman had a particular style, a particular abrasive style, which perhaps worked very well as a military man can do Brisbane City Councillor, but maybe didn't work well uh, and a state premier where you're talking about slashing public service jobs and doing this and doing that and selling off things and you really had to sell the what Mike Baird sold in New South Wales as the asset recycling uh, really failed to sell. There's been a history of politicians going back and forth and Anna Bly and then Campbell Newman but became very unpopular. So I think uh, it, can be, it can be unpopular and I think the style matters and I think you've really got to make, make the case. And I think Mike Baird shows you you can make a case on some things to say how this can improve my life. Yeah, well, talking about unpopular economic reform, there's no question that workplace relations has been unpopular at the ballot box. We go back to 2007 when John Howard arguably lost power, uh, primarily on the basis of the unpopularity of work choices. The unions ran a nasty scare campaign. They were very successful. Both of you have been unashamed advocates of industrial relations reform. How do you revive industrial relations reform and still maintain political momentum? Peter. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Good question. So um, I think there is no doubt, uh, and most of the, uh, I'm not sure about John Howard in particular, but I think even him said that the work choices pr program that he enunciated in 2005 went too far. And um, and I think even if he doesn't admit it, he admitted it by implication when he actually reversed some of it before he uh, left government in 2007. The problem is that the uh, that Julia Gillard as first industrial relations minister and then as prime minister didn't just backtrack to where they had been before work choices. And she didn't just backtrack to what Howard had had since 98. <coughs> she backtracked not even just to what Paul Keating had introduced to 93, but to further back. And um, and that is the big problem for Australia. It's about this productivity agenda. Now, you could argue, which is put to me by people on the Labor side, well, look, we haven't had any particularly adverse consequences from those changes. I think people who run small businesses and had penalty rates problems and stuff like that, they have a different view about that. Also, eventually, sometime, we're going to have a downturn. We're going to have a recession. There is a business cycle that exists. <laughs> and I know we haven't had one for 27 years, but we will eventually have one. And when we do, that's when these changes are really going to hurt if they're still in place. Because what happened um, in the past, before Howard changed stuff in 98, changed, changed industrial relations in 98, is that every time there was a recession, the bottom of the uh, the unemployment rate rose in the sense of you would have a you know 
if you go right back to the Menzies years, unemployment was around 2%. But as time went by, by the time Howard won in 96, the unemployment rate was uh, well over 8%. And that mm -hmm. was considered at the time the bottom. But it wasn't. Yeah. Now, the uh, union movement itself uh, comprises a very small percentage of the, pop of the workplace. And yet they're really re renewing their activism under Sally McManus and the ACTU. Michael, you're an editorial writer primarily as the editor of the Financial Review, among other things you do there. How do you sell industrial relations reform in the face of this heated union campaign? Yeah, well, I think it's it's setting itself up to uh, become a real class, class warfare type battle. Uh, the unions are less strong than they used to be. The economy is very different. Work choices was like two decades ago now, so it's a long time ago. Uh, we've had things like the internet and iPhone, etc., sort of since then. So it's a very different economy. I think the great pity that what the conservative side of politics hasn't done is hasn't sought to reframe the debate. Let's just change the debate. Perhaps I love a bit of old IR warrior. I love I love that sort of stuff. But let's just change the notion of it. How can we have in the modern world, in the world of the digital, in the uh, in the gig economy, uh, the young people think very different about how they go about their jobs than they did in the past. They're not looking to have a job for life. They move around. How can we have sort of high pr a, a rhetoric of high productivity, high performance workplaces? For once, may may not need to be fully regulated by by the system. System, should be able to be to escape from the from the system in various ways. If you show that you're a you're a modern uh, and a lot of the a lot of the big companies are really leading the way in employee benefits and sort of you know but uh, uh, parental leave and these sort of things and superannuation they can so we're well above we're well let's 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 escape let's have an opt out sort of stream and why don't why don't we reframe it so at the moment the IR minister is. Michaelia Cash, and she's the Minister for Innovation, but I'm not sure if really she's sort of, it's not a sort of selling that message of innovation and the new economy and how it's a completely different world out there. You know, this this, this digital world is a different world to the old, you know, IR, Labor v. Capital world. That's that's sort of gone, apart from on the, the wharves, uh, on the construction sites and, uh, and some other places. So your argument then is that the digital world is making it more conducive then for market-friendly policy changes in industrial relations. Yeah, and I think the, the issue has become, uh, and that still has a big impact, like it's incredible that the CFMEU uh, it still exists. You know, Hawkey got rid of the BLF and you got the CFMEU, which elects members onto the board of CBUS, a superannuation uh, fund, which is regulated by APRA. It's sort of incredible and it's a recidivist union. That's, in, that, that's an incredible... But we're talking at a time when many pundits are saying that the political winds are shifting against people like us and the causes we represent. I mean, if you look at Britain, Theresa May is a big government conservative. Across the Tasman, you've got a, a New Zealand Prime Minister who unashamedly says that capitalism has failed. Uh, in the United States, Trump is putting tariffs on imports. He's not a free marketeer. Kennedy, you've got Trudeau. So are the political winds in the Anglosphere shifting against free market economics? Peter? Well, um, um, look, the, I, I think uh, you've, better, you've typecast... Uh, the Conservative government in the UK a little. Um, I think that they, uh, certainly since Cameron originally won, um, have, have done a, a very good job. They got their budget back into balance very quickly. Mm. I think they've been in surplus since, Michael, I don't mm. know for sure, but I think they have. Um, I actually think they have 
run uh, reasonably. Um, the uh, the Americans, uh, the uh, I think that there is a, a reform agenda and a low tax agenda still within the Republican Party. Mm. Paul Ryan, who is unfortunately retiring from politics at this upcoming November election, who is the Speaker of the House, has had some very good ideas and 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 sought to implement them. Uh, in Congress, uh, I, I think you would find him uh, uh, in simpatico with the sort of views mm -hmm. that you like. Um, Donald Trump is, I think, yes, I agree. I, I'm of all the things that he's doing. I think that that what he's doing on trade and tariffs is extremely dangerous, and um, that that's what I'm particularly worried about. Michael, you follow international relations closely. You were a Washington correspondent for four years. Uh, a few hours ago, we had a Bernie Sanders candidate knock off an establishment Democrat Clintonite. Uh, so clearly, the shifts are going both sides in American politics. The Democrats are becoming more liberal, and the Republicans are becoming more nativist and populist. And this is not isolated. You go across Europe, many conservatives and socialists are becoming more interventionist and protectionist. To what extent is this a problem for us? Uh uh, well, I think it's a it's a uh, it's a trend which you can see happening here, but nowhere near to the same extent. You know, globally, uh, through um, through it's issues to do with I think globalisation and the way it's worked out, to do with new technology, uh, to do with the way that uh, existing political systems are really being really being challenged. You're seeing a polarisation and a fragmentation of the political system, mm -hmm. and it typically polarises. You look at those little diagrams, those scatter diagrams of Twitter sphere uh, feeds, where you know everyone's over on that mm -hmm. and that and that smudge, or they're over on that smudge. So it's no doubt it's a it's a polarising thing. So you see here, Shorten, he's moving to the left on the whole Corbyn redistribution anti-business type area uh, and that's uh, it's pushing him over there but he's got to watch but he's got to watch out because he doesn't want to move too far over on the cultural side because uh, because he'll get into because he wants to stay close into the government on areas such as uh, border protection, border protection. Yep. so he's so he's so he's he's trying to stay mm. he's trying not to move too far on the cultural issues and of course now you know the era that we're that we're talking about and in your book there's a lot of wet v dries because now cultural issues have come over the top yeah. and really confuse things so it's you know it's the it's uh it's uh, things like will wild things such as Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn have sort of suddenly become things you'd think were so socialist and so out there, suddenly become mainstream. Mm. And I think partly that's a response to the financial crisis itself. There's a lot of mad policy around, like the world's central banks did do some pretty mad things, you know, in terms of printing money and all mm. that. Sort of like, you know, who would have thought that would be a good policy to do? Now, maybe it was the only thing to do when the, when the whole theatre was on fire. But, you know, once you do that, I think also sorts of things are up for grabs. And of course what also uh, distinguishes Australia from North America or certainly the United States and much of Europe and England is that we weathered the global financial storm. Mm. Those countries went into a pretty serious recession for yeah. at least a year or two and that's led to sluggish growth in those countries. We've had 27 years of uninterrupted growth. So let me put you back on the spot, Michael, and say a lot of people might say we've had 27 years of uninterrupted growth. You mentioned before we've got a boom in infrastructure, wool, tourism, commodity prices are going back up. There's a global upswing thanks to Trump's tax cuts for company levels. Why do we need to do the hard work of economic reform? 
Uh, I think we've we've been saved a little bit by the by the upswing, and we've got a lot of things going for us. Still, this is a, this extremely rich and prosperous society. Over in the seventies, this was a reasonably sort of crappy society in a lot of ways, and we've become now a rich, prosperous, one of the most prosperous societies on earth. The question is, can we sort of can we keep growing from here and sustaining it? And I think that goes to the Australian experiment, like going 10, 20, 30, 40 years in advance. Still, can we still maintain? Uh, what you call the Australian experiment of a high-income uh, economy, diverse, <coughs> integrated into Asia, but maintaining the best of Enlightenment values and the and the the institutions of the respect for law and order and the parliamentary democracy. Mm. And to do that, you know, we need to be a really thriving economy and a thriving democracy. And that's a sort of national security issue, I think. Yeah, but to term. put those kind of policies in place, Peter, we've got to get through Parliament. Now, Paul Kelly, the distinguished journalist who's been a guest here at CIS many times over the last few years, has talked a lot about a political crisis in Canberra, that we're blind to this political crisis because of an obstructionist Senate. Uh, the media is increasingly treating politics as infotainment. And uh, you even say that social media now is geared to negativity that, quote, can kill decent ideas for reform right. in as quickly as a 12-hour news cycle. That's right. That's right. So... Let me. There's a lot packed into that question. Well, the so, point is, to what extent is it a political so crisis there, in Canberra? There's two. There's a couple of things. So I, I actually agree with Paul Kelly that there is a dysfunction in a democracy with respect to the Senate. Uh, sometimes, I mean, a lot of uh, my conservative friends won't like me talking about this, but I think that that the Senate. So the Westminster system that we adopted. And, and tacked on part of the American system in 1901, has, I think, come up against a brick wall. And if you think about it... The what are Keating call well, it? Unrepresentative swap? Well, when, when, uh, when 1901, they actually... Well, in the lead-up to 1901, they wrote the Constitution. Uh, the House of Lords in the UK was all-powerful and uh, was a central part of their democratic system. Within 11 years, in 1911, that ceased. Most Australians don't even have a sense of this, but in 1911, the House of Lords completely lost its power, right? And, and that was a, over 100 years ago. We, however, have a very strong Senate, which is effectively co-equal with the, with the House of Representatives. But it's the House of Representatives in which the Australian population votes in a government. And we have a dysfunction in the sense that for decades now, um, election after election, we, the Australian population, pick a government, Labor or Liberal, with a mandate. And invariably, they can't implement their bloody mandate. And when that happens, there is a dysfunction. And no wonder um, a lot of Australians, particularly young Australians, are very jaundiced about our democracy. Okay, but then to be fair, in New Zealand you had John Key and Bill English put in place a lot of free market reforms. They didn't have a Senate and the result was a millennial socialist coming to power. Queensland, Campbell Newman didn't have a Senate or an upper house. He legislated a pretty good sound free market, tax cutting, public spending cutting agenda. He lost elections. So what's the point with Peter's argument about a Senate? 
Uh, well, I think pilot, well, the Senate in the federal system is clearly the road is clearly a roadblock to getting things done, and um, uh, the um, opposition is not respecting uh, increasingly the government's mandate, and Abbott didn't really respect the uh, the, la the Labor mandate. You get rid on of the, the Senate and you yeah. reform the Commonwealth. Well, uh, but that's we're not going to get rid of the Senate. No one's arguing to get rid of the okay. Senate. Okay, yeah. you want to dilute it? I want I want to look at the joint sitting. Uh, double dissolution trigger. So the reason why double dissolutions are rare and the reason why <coughs> if Malcolm Turnbull stays Prime Minister there will never be a double dissolution again while he's Prime Minister <laughs> is, what, is what we saw last right. election, which is um, I could go through the details. Uh, this sort of audience, they'll understand most of it, um, which is essentially because of a double dissolution quota system, it is easier for, for minor parties and independence to win seats, creating a bigger crossbench, creating more problems to get a majority in the Senate. And the fact is, if we could have some sort of a, a circuit breaker that exists at some state levels, where you can have a joint sitting without a double dissolution election, I think uh, this would be worth considering. It was actually... Most people will not even realise this. John Howard became so frustrated about this uh, before he actually won a majority in the Senate, that he actually set up a task force that looked at this and they reviewed the issue and reported on how you could potentially change the, the voting system with respect to the Senate. So you keep it, but you modify it. Yeah, okay. Now, um, we're talking about uh, the perils in trying to implement some sound productivity-enhancing economic reform. Uh, we've experienced the last 10 years of reform fatigue in Canberra. And I suppose uh, this is a nice segue into the question about uh, the younger generation. How do they feel about economic reform? And the Centre for Independent Studies just last week released some polls from YouGov uh, that established the views of millennial Australians. Uh, these are young people who were born between 1980 and 1996, so they're roughly 22 and 36, 38 years of age. And the results were indeed striking. Among other things, nearly 60% of Australian millennials uh, think that capitalism has failed and that socialism is a good thing. Um, what do you make of those polls, Michael? Well, it's an absurd sort of result. You know, it's clearly it's not the case. Uh, I don't think anyone in their right minds would say that, you know, socialism would be better than capitalism. But these young people will say that they're being priced out of the housing market, they're paying high costs for education, there's been wage stagnation over the last few years. Isn't this the fault of capitalism? That's what no, they I think say. the standard of living of young people today is higher than it's ever been. They travel, the things that they can do is they, where they can travel the world. They've got, they've got the computing power of IBM 1960 in their... <laughs> In their in their pocket, uh, they can do all sorts of sexual adventures on their mobile phone. You know, it's, uh, you know, they've never had more freedom to do to do whatever they want with their lives. Back the attitudes of young people, Peter. Okay, well, oh, I'll just I give mean, you this one. I'll give you this one. Sixty-two percent think that Australian workers are worse off today than they were four decades ago before economic reform was implemented. So, did, did you? I think, look, the, the poll is, is, is interesting. Assuming it is accurate, and I am, uh, it, it is quite alarming um, that, that the education system and the media messages that, the, that, that young Australians are picking up is so warped from reality. 
Um, I did talk about in the book social media, and I didn't actually get yeah. get to talk about that before. Mm. I, I think that's part of it. Um, people well, have that just uh, speeds I'm, up the news cycle. Well, you mean? well, well. No, no, I don't. I don't mean that. I, I, I think that there, that there is... Um, I tell you what, if we were living in a communist country and you did that poll, you'd have the exact opposite answer. Uh, it, you know, it's not it, reassuring, though. No, no, but what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that um, what social media does is it, it is... It, it, its problem is that it can be very toxic, it can be very... Um, it can be extremely negative, and it's, it turbocharges that commentary. So um, it, it only requires some people to be saying the education system is absolutely ridiculous in third world in Australia and that will go around the country within seconds and people will read it and if they don't have another to a point of reference, they believe it. It's a bit like, you know, I know it's a very famous phrase most of you have heard, but it's what Winston Churchill used to say, you know, um, it, 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 you know a, a lie will circle the world before truth has the chance to put its pants on, uh, you know, to get, to get into the, to the debate. The fact is that I think that part of the problem that you are seeing generated in this result mm. is, that, is that people are picking up all this negativity, and that's what I meant before. It doesn't matter what, you know... It, you know, if it was a Calathumpian government or something, everybody would hate it because that's what social media is saying. Everything that's wrong in the country is related to this government or whatever it is. Mm. It's striking, uh, just a detour, uh, these young folks obviously have the world at their fingertips, literally. I mean, they have so much information right in their iPhones. And yet we polled uh, young millennials about uh, major figures in history only 21% knew well who Mao Zedong was. Um, uh, something like 26% knew well who Vladimir Lenin was. I think Stalin was a bit more well known. He was 34%, um, which is just quite striking, isn't it? Um, but this reflects uh, trends overseas in the United States. Uh, one third of millennials believe that George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin. Uh, in Britain, uh, a majority of British young people aged between 16 and 24 are more likely to associate crimes against humanity with former Prime Minister Tony Blair than Mao Zedong. <laughs> and let's remember, Mao Zedong's regime killed anywhere between 40 and 50 million people. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, Michael, um, when Charles Jacobs, my colleague at the CIS, and I try to get our head around young people's views about how capitalism's getting worse and working conditions are getting worse and have been worse uh, than they were 40 years ago. We just pointed out some data. In the fourth quarter of 2017, this is in real terms, um, weekly income reached a historic high of $1,192. Now that's $254 more in real terms than the fourth quarter of 1977. We made all these kinds of arguments. And if you speak to millennials, that doesn't cut through. Why? Oh, well, I suppose it's uh, it's the nature of youth, really. You don't really have... Uh, I think we've all been through it. We're all young once, and we don't really have a great appreciation of <laughs> what came before our world started in year dot when we when we began, I suppose. And uh, uh, and uh, there's so much a saturation of media and information about now. And I think there's a certain amount as well in the, in the mobile phone thing. A lot of it is about self-validation. Mm -hmm. And if you're mm -hmm. wanting to... You know, the way the whole business world is being transformed 
it's about how do you get individually to customers. You know, the mass media before was, you know, advertisements in newspapers and this sort of thing. And now it's, you know, ads targeted very much to you and your reading habits on a little device. And it wants to, and you're looking to be self-validated all the time. You know, mm. I want things, I want the company, I want my bank to... To be like me and to have my values and to mm. and to validate me and so it's a, so the individualism the rugged individualism of the CIS yes. is being reflected in a rather indulgent way. Peter, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, do you blame um, the young people or do you blame higher education and schools? Uh, well, uh, I don't I don't blame young people. Um, uh, I think that uh, it's it. I think it's the, 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 the things I've been talking about and Michael's been talking about, it is about social media. Mm -hmm. It is uh, about those things, definitely. There is an issue about the school system in this country. We know uh, in this audience that there's been a massive debate in recent weeks about the Ramsey Centre. And I think that... For uh, Western civilisation. For Western civilisation and the fact that Australian National University, the National University, for God's sake, won't, won't accept that. And I think that is a travesty. And I think that um, the excuses that are being thrown around are, are, um, um, are, are second rate. Yeah. Okay, well now it's time for Q&A. And our first question will come from a colleague of mine at CIS. Uh, he's a former senior economist in the Treasury Departments of both the state and uh, the federal government. And uh, he's also um, uh, been affiliated with the IMF and the World Bank, and of course he's our tax uh, economist here at CIS, Robert Carling. Well, I'm, go I'm going to uh, continue uh, asking political questions. Um, it's about bipartisanship and the importance of bipartisanship in relation to economic reform. You know, I, I think that in our wider community, there is always a lot of sympathy for thinking that uh, privatisation is bad, protection is good, uh, subsidies are good, regulation is good, uh, government uh, transfer payments are good, and so on and so forth. Perhaps not a majority in all cases, but a substantial stream of that thinking. And if you have one major political party that is willing to tap into that sentiment, or well not just tap into it, but pander to it and encourage it, you will never get the kind of reform you are talking about. And you have to have a degree of bipartisanship, not full agreement on all the details, obviously. There will always be a political contest but the major parties being on the, at least being on the same page. Now maybe in New Zealand you can get reform without this kind of bipartisanship because they, have, they don't have the checks and balances that we have. But in our system, which has a lot of checks and balances, you've got to have that degree of bipartisanship which we don't have now and therefore you will not get the kind of reform you were talking about. Comment, please. 
I'm not that pessimistic, to be honest. I really am not. Um, and I think that uh, history tells you... So I, I've indicated there's problems. There's problems with our democratic uh, institutions and those sorts of things. But nonetheless, I remain an optimist. And I believe that you can implement uh, reforms because I think that, that when you go through... Your list that you went through, uh, that's right. You know, you, you've pointed out that... Effectively, a big government agenda is more popular. But the fact is, actually, that the Australian people as a whole also don't like high levels of tax. They don't like budget deficits. They don't. Actually, the polling, if we believe this poll, you can believe other polls, and the other polls say they actually think that is a very important thing living, governments living within their means. And so there is a chance for bipartisanship because those issues also remain important and a blessing of democracy is you have to get more than 50%. So you have to get the mainstream. Mm. Just quickly. And, and it's just quickly, Michael, on that note, it's not all the doom and gloom, is it? Because um, I think you've cited polls in the Fin Review that show strong, widespread support for company tax cuts, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, you wouldn't have thought it from the from the coverage, but the uh, the Ipsos-Fairfax poll, I think it was the latest one we had, and, and put it in a very neutral way, but even then it was surprising, I thought. I think it was 49% were in favour of... Uh, of, a, of a very straight sort of question such as do you think there should be a cut in the company tax rate, that sort of thing, non-loaded non at all, and it was 44 against, you know, right in the white heat of the argument. So I think uh, the argument, and now we're seeing this now, we're just starting, I think, the coalition to get its sort of line and length really on this sort of argument. And so we will have a, a genuine national uh, argument over this thing. As well on trade, I think the Australian public are pretty well uh, in favour of free trade. You do a free trade agreement, they're in favour favour of that. I think they're, uh, by and large, they wouldn't favour re-imposition of tariff protection uh, in Australia. Mm. And uh, they see the benefits of the free trade deals. And I think, so I think, uh, the, the, I think it's there, to, this is a debate that's there to be And, and you, you've cited this before. I think the Lowy Institute with their annual polls last year showed that something like 78 to 80% of the Australian people believe that globalisation is a good thing. Yep. You wouldn't get that in the United States, would you? No, and that's because in Australia it clearly has been a good thing, i.e. China us Australia becoming you know surprisingly the the supplier of the raw materials into the biggest industrialization the world has ever seen uh, from the early 2000s that's clearly been a good thing for Australia and even though most Australians don't recognize enough that their standard of living comes from the iron ore price I think everybody realized that China buying a lot of our our iron ore, our coal and our gas really supports, supports our standard of living. Okay, next question from one of our long-time supporters, Rafe Champion. Oh, Rafe Champion, uh, independent scholar and Cadillacsy blogger. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying about productivity. Uh, productivity in economics is a bit like location in real estate. Uh, productivity, productivity and productivity. <laughs> and, and I wonder if productivity exists in the Keynesian, Labor Party and the Trade Union Dictionary. Uh, past, moving on, uh, what do you think we can do about productivity in this country as long as our energy, our renewable energy policy and cognate policies uh, are practically a national suicide note? Whoa. And I'd like to know what you were saying in the party room and saying to Malcolm when that issue came up. 
Well, I'm not supposed to tell you what I say in the party room. That's a, <laughs> oh, you're out of locked, now, mate. Come on. It's a locked box. But uh, <laughs> the look, I, I, if I could, um, back in 2015, there was a debate about increasing the renewable energy target. And um, at the time, the renewable energy uh, percentage across the energy market was about 17%, 17.5. And the renewable energy target that we have been left by previous governments was 20%. And the Abbott government increased it to 23%. And I argued, along with a lot of people, that maybe we should leave it at, at set it at about where it was at the time, 17.5%. And um, but that's not what uh, the government of the day did, and that then has become that has <coughs> remained the policy of the coalition government under two prime ministers since then. So that's what I argued, and um, and then uh, I, I think that um, uh, certainly uh, to to join into your um, apocalyptic language um, that if the uh, if we were to uh, adopt the Labor Party policy of 50% target is would be uh, economic suicide for this country. Yeah, Michael, we've, uh, I think Rafe uh, reflects uh, the, the views of a lot of Conservatives and Liberal Party uh, voters, uh, members of the CIS who are sceptical of renewable energy. You're taking a more benign view of renewable in the AFR editorials. Am I right in saying that? Uh, no, I'd say that uh, we'd say that if you think that... Um, uh, if you think that Australia has signed up to an international agreement to reduce the uh, carbon intensity of our economy, if that's, we've signed up to it and we think uh, as an insurance policy on global warming, if we think we should do that, then we would generally back uh, a price-based mechanism to do that. So we would back uh, generally a, some sort of carbon price, and there'll always be in all these schemes, there'll be a price embedded in there somewhere. It's just how, you know, with the renewable energy target, there's a price embedded in there. So we'd go for you know the price mechanism by and large to to uh, to to make that adjustment. This is a sector in the whole electricity system is being disrupted by technology quite quite radically in a mm. lot of ways now. So it's it's uh, you know how at some stages whether uh, you know can you get another coal-fired power station conceivably built in Australia? I'd, doubt it myself uh, and I wouldn't want to see government go around starting to build coal-fired power or any power station uh, uh, as they did in the past. I don't think you'd get private uh, money behind it. Uh, clearly we're still subsidising renewables and I'd like to see that end uh, because they're becoming so cheap and they, they shouldn't, don't need well, to I be subsidised. Joshua Frydenberg uh, told an AFR conference yeah. six months ago that by 2020 they won't require any taxpayer subsidies for renewables. Uh, I, I, well I think uh, I'm not... Is that, is that, is that polyannish? I think, I think that just means that you're not going to increase any more because the current ones, I think they go out to 2030, I think. Oh. Uh, but they, you're not going to add to them anymore. I think right. that's what okay. that... I think that's what ne it is. Next subject. We'll just get the mic over there. Sorry, mate, I can't see you very well. Just say who you are and, and um, we'll get the mic. Thanks for that. Uh, my name is Ben Hughes. Is there a... Um, this is in regards to economics. Is there a confidence lacking among our federal politicians to... Um, undertaking significant reform which was um, similar to the reforms that Hawke and Keating undertook in the 1980s? Uh, that's a good question for you, Michael. 
you know, I think that's been the tenor of our uh, of a lot of things we've said here when you when you add it all up when you add it all up that uh, that was a particular moment of uh, history and I think it followed a, le a long period of uh, subpar performance of the Australian economy uh, a long period of uh, certain types of uh, politicians leading the charge uh, yeah, the think tanks crisis as well think tanks yeah. yeah think tank well you had the early 80s recession yeah. uh, you had uh, the, uh, the then you had the banana Rep Republic crisis you had then you had a long build-up of people including the financial review including the CIS including Bert Kelly uh, people such as this so there was a there was a long build-up of which I think is a very important thing to have that while you're in a period where politics is not right for this uh, groups such as the CIS and, and media institutions such as the Financial Review and reformers such as Peter and everyone in this room still needs to lay the groundwork for taking the opportunity when, when it's there to be done. Because these things do go in cycles and it's not it's not a good period now for it, but at some stage there will be. Maybe it'll be when the next crisis comes, and I think it's, we should be already sort of armed, ready to, ready to do it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd just like to add, add to that um, some, something. Uh, and to, I, I acknowledge what Hawke and Keating did. And, with uh, bipartisan support. With bipartisan support, and that's where I'm getting to, <laughs> which is that I actually think John Howard's finest hour was, was not during that long term that he was for 11 years Prime Minister, but it was when he was shadow treasurer or opposition leader during the Hawke-Keating government where he, he argued within the Liberal Party room and won the arguments to support their reforms because they could have blocked them in the Senate in those days. Andy uh, fought Fraser to institute the, I think, the Campbell Committee report in the That's first right. place beforehand. That's right, on financial deregulation. Yeah. Next question comes from a CIS colleague, Jeremy Sammet, who heads our new Culture and Prosperity Program. Thanks, Tom. Um, congratulations, Peter, on the book. Um, one of the things tonight's discussion has reinforced to me is that I've always believed that in the 80s and the 90s, we reformed the commanding heights of the economy. But what we haven't done is reform the commanding heights of politics. And the commanding heights of politics are health, education, welfare systems in generally. And with what Michael was saying about the difficulties of reforming entitlements, yeah. I wonder if that is really the political reality we're going to continue to move forward in, where we are going to have to try and reform the economy in order to, able, to be able to afford the welfare state. And because there doesn't seem to be any real appetite for reforming, any meaningful reform or any productivity agenda around health, education and welfare. Just like your general comments on that. Right. So, that, uh, so uh, I, I agree and I disagree. So I agree in the sense that um, uh, your, 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 your statement is right, that uh, there, there is an opportunity for a lot of reform in those welfare areas and indeed the Productivity Commission has in a number of reports over the best part of 20 years or more uh, pointed out that there was, uh, and Gary Banks who was chairman of the commission for a long time particularly made the point there was lots of lost opportunities to reform these areas. Uh, I also agree in the sense that health is a uh, dominant uh, part of the economy and therefore productivity reform in that or regulatory reform in health would actually uh, uh, help the productivity agenda across the economy. I don't agree in the sense that I think when you get back to it, and I know it's sort of like boring, broken record, but the fundamentals about 
how high the tax system is, how your whole industrial relations system is, uh, uh, and and whether you have a free or fair trade bias in your your whole international trade environment are the bottom line of your Australia, of your prosperity in the country. They're the really big ticket ones. They're the I think you described them the commanding heights. But if we're going backwards in some of those, that overwhelms anything you you could potentially do in the health system. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got time for one more question? Uh, please alert my colleague Monica before we ask that question. Let me ask you a question that no one's raised: foreign policy. One of your controversial proposals in your book is the case for nuclear energy. Or sorry, a nuclear arsenal here in Australia, which begs the question: Why should we do that? Peter, when we have the American nuclear umbrella. Well, that's right. And we shouldn't while we have the <laughs> nuclear umbrella because I don't actually argue that we should have a nuclear arsenal. What I raise and point out in the book is that you, most of you who have interest in international affairs and defence may not realise that there is, a, there is a debate going on in the defence expert community about nuclear weapons. <laughs> and that is because of nuclear proliferation. This is at the root cause of the why what's happening in North Korea and Iran is so important um, to countries like Australia, is that if they, um, well, they, they have nuclear weapons now in North Korea, they, ha they could potentially have them in Iran. Uh, it could be that Japan will nuclearize. It could be that Saudi Arabia will, the UAE will, the Q80s, might. And, and then you start getting to this issue as with the nuclear umbrella that we are under that is a part of our national security alliance with the United States, you know, are the Americans going to be, you know, with so many potential adversaries with nuclear weapons, are they going to sacrifice Los Angeles if Darwin is blowing up or Sydney's blowing up? That's the question. And I think that the reason, the reason I've raised the issue is it is an issue that is being debated. And, and I make the point, being an economist, that if it got to the stage where we had to seriously consider this in 10 years' time or 20 years' time, it is a fortune that we would have to spend on this. The, the British have just... Uh, are in the process of renewing their Trident system with their submarines, nuclear submarines. It is costing them $300 billion to just do that, irrespective of every other defence commitment they've got. It is horrendously expensive, and if we have to do some, if we had to do something like that, we would have to have a very strong economy to afford it. Okay, final question. David Gallagher. David Gallagher, uh, finance professor, joining University of Queensland next month. Uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, two things related to reform. First of all, the Senate. The Senate's a house of review. It's also a state's house. Um, perhaps one of the reform elements should be something like the House of Lords, where uh, money bills are not able to be vetoed by the House of Lords, so government can get on with their agenda. I'd like some comment on that. Second thing is, um, when you think about reform, and not just in terms of how democracy is exercised in, in Parliament, um, what about the view of, uh, of bureaucracy? Because there's a change of government. I don't see much turnover in bureaucracy. You might get a change in the secretary, but um, essentially, to what extent are the bureaucracy captured by groupthink? Uh, well, on the first question about the Senate, uh, the, and the, the, the House of Lords, what, what 
the situation is not just the money bills in the House of Lords, it's all bills, right? Except for some very, very, very minor uh, on the side issues. And uh, so uh, I'm not arguing to, to go that far with respect to our Senate. I think there is a role uh, for, for uh, it having a voice. And, and voting on bills. But when there is a, a clash on really key issues, there might be a better uh, joint sitting option to get through a, a government's mandate. On the second issue with respect to, um, what was it again? The bureaucracy. The bureaucracy. Well, uh, I, 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 I have some issues with the culture and the bureaucracy, but it's not the central problem in this country. Um, um, I know what I'd like to do with a lot of them, but but I can't. I'm not allowed to. It's. That's okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Peter, and thank you, Michael. Um, as I mentioned before in my introduction, uh, the CIS has been a long-standing supporter of uh, economic reform and free markets, and uh, we've been very lucky over the last few decades to have affiliated with us. Uh, a distinguished uh, intellectual and expert on education reform, Professor Stephen Schwartz. He has been, among other things, uh, a former Vice-Chancellor at Macquarie University, um, Murdoch University in Perth, and also Brunel University in London. Uh, to give the vote of thanks, please welcome Stephen Schwartz. Tom, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to move a vote of thanks to uh, Michael and Peter for that stimulating discussion. I was making notes during it and uh, putting them in order of interest, and at least in my interest, and I just was reading them over before I got up here, and my top one is to ask Michael what sexual adventures you can get up to with your phone. <laughs> ask the young people. Might wait for the for that. If Australians are really sleepwalking uh, into the future, then Peter's book is certainly a wake-up alarm uh, for anyone who reads it and for someone who's worked at the highest level of the government. And listening to the discussion this evening and also reading the book, it came to me that there were really three vital questions raised there. What, first was, why do governments in the first place implement policies that impose net costs on society? Why do such policies persist even when people know that there are better alternatives available? And why do some inefficient policies eventually get replaced while others seem to endure forever and ever? And it seems, reading the book, and nothing I heard tonight changed it, that the answer to all of these questions is politics. And um, I thought, well, maybe we should end this with a kind of optimistic story. So here's my best optimistic story about policy change. It's from my home state of Western Australia. For 70 years, the West Australian government supported an organization called the Potato Marketing Corporation, the PMC. And the PMC determined who could grow potatoes, what kind of potatoes they can grow, how many, and what they can sell them for. And as you can imagine, there's some value in this for the growers. In fact, all of the benefits of this scheme flow to the growers of potatoes. And all the deadweight costs of it were distributed among all the sort of potato consumers of Western Australia. And of course, none of them knew that they were paying these costs. And in all the years of its existence, no government, not Liberal, not Labor, 
ever tried to abolish the PMC. And they all realized, they weren't stupid, they knew that the PMC was ridiculous, it was unfair, it was wasteful, it was inefficient. Um, but they also knew that the growers would fiercely defend the status quo, and the population as a whole, well, either were ignorant of the whole thing or apathetic and could care less. So why stir up a hornet's nest? Now, according to Milton Friedman, only a crisis, actual or perceived, really leads to change, to, to real change. And the crisis was actually stirred up by the PMC themselves. What they did is they prosecuted a rebellious farmer for the heinous crime of growing too many potatoes. <laughs> but they picked on the wrong guy. Right. This guy made a lot of noise. First thing he did was give away all his potatoes for free. Um, and he made so much noise that he woke up the sleepwalkers of Western Australia. He got them out of their slumber. And they finally figured out what was going on. So last year, sadly only last year, the PMC was finally wound up. Now John Stuart Mill said that change happens when the right circumstances meet the right ideas. And ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll agree that Peter Hendy and Michael Stutchbury and Tom all have the right ideas. And let's just hope that we're lucky enough to get the right circumstances to be able to implement them. I want to thank everyone in the CIS who helped to organize tonight's event. I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking our guests for a very stimulating and thoughtful.